You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, episode 54 with Wes Lowry. You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Trailblazers podcast. This episode is being published on February 6th, 2017. And last week, February 1st, marked our one-year anniversary of the launch of the Trailblazers podcast. We are so very excited about this one-year mark. I'll be celebrating all month long with a reflection on and also acknowledgement of this, this month being Black History Month, right? So stay tuned for some cool and amazing things that we've got in store for you, our listeners. So there's this unique, you know, a uniqueness to this podcast, right? That's that's now been downloaded by listeners in almost 90 countries around the world in this our first year. And most of you are black working professionals who are listening to inspiring stories of other successful black professionals, right? For the most part, in the prior 53 episodes, I've nearly altogether avoided the discussion of race on the show. And I guess I've wanted to provide an inviting platform to people of all races, allowing for anyone to be at ease while listening to and deriving value from someone who has experienced success and is black. And so over the past year, I've used Trailblazers to counter the recurring negative race theme in the media, in the mainstream media, with a deliberate and positive mission, right? To, to create a, a massive database of valuable and, and respected Black people whose stories lead us and inspire us to take action towards our own greater purpose and mission. So after saying all that, I would like to introduce today's featured guest who was brought on to discuss race and the racial justice movement in America today. You know, I, I think it, this was a, a good episode, but I have to tell you, the injustices around police shootings of unarmed black men and women over the past several years has brought about a sense of hopelessness and frustration unlike anything I've ever felt. And it is very much a very real part of our history, our black history and our lives. And we're affected by it today. And our kids are affected by it today. And we need to be more deliberate to understand what's happening and know more than the media tells us. So though this month, you know, Black History Month, we celebrate the, 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 the leaders, the civil rights leaders and the people from our past that went before us to, to hopefully provide a better today. You know, there's, there's still some real issues that we're facing. And so our featured guest is... Wesley Lowry. And Wes Lowry is a, a Pulitzer Prize winning national reporter for the Washington Post. And Wes covers law enforcement and justice. And he was the paper's lead reporter in Ferguson, Missouri, covering the Black Lives Matter protest movement and was a member of the team that was awarded the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for national reporting for coverage of the police shootings. Wes is also the author of a new book, titled They Can't Kill Us All. And we'll talk about some of this in today's episode. Just a quick disclaimer, Wes was on a cell phone for the call and there are a couple brief pockets where the audio is a little less than ideal. And, you know, you'll hear everything you need to hear, but I just wanted to let you know, I'm aware 
of the audio kinks and you know i i decided to go ahead and bypass those i encourage everyone to listen and feel free to connect with me you know on 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 social or through email or however you need to um you know i i'm at tb pod just about everywhere on social media you know feel free to share your thoughts on today's discussion and that's it let's dive into today's episode with our trailblazer wesley lowry Wes, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. So you are uh, an Ohio native, born and bred, right? Who grew up in Cleveland. Uh, of course. Grew up in Cleveland. Yep. Outside of Cleveland. Are you a Cavs fan? I am a Cavs fan. So it's been a good year for me. That's right. <laughs> so I read that you attended Shaker Heights High School and went on to Ohio University. For, for yes. those that don't know, that's one of America's oldest universities, right? Yeah, founded in 1804. They used to call it the Harvard on the Hocking River. Um, so OU, Ohio trivia. Um, <laughs> but yes, beautiful campus. You know, I'm curious, did growing up in Cleveland and attending these schools have an impact on your decision to become a journalist? Well, of course. I mean, a big part of it was that, you know, the high school I went to in Shaker has a really great high school journalism program. Right. So I was like a member of my high school newspaper from the first day I was on campus as a high schooler, right? Wow. And so that... I mean, so I've been like doing journalism almost every day since I was 13 or 14 years old. And I, I mean, so that obviously played a large role in my decision to keep doing it. And then by the time it was time for me to start thinking about colleges, I knew several people from the college, from the high school paper who had gone on to work for college papers. And so they were helping me look at journalism schools. And then, you know, um, OU, uh, Ohio University has a great journalism program, uh, the Scripps School. And so I, you know, went there and immediately kind of dove into, um, immediately dove into the newspaper on campus and, you know, journalism classes and, you know, the rest was kind of history after that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. I saw that they were a nationally recognized high school. You know, it's great, great school. Um, Tons of support there. I love getting back anytime I can. Um, you know, a big, I'm really blessed in large parts of the decisions my parents made and like kind of where they wanted us to live that I was always able to go to some, you know, really, really great schools. Yeah, I enjoyed reading that that piece of the book uh, on how you you mentioned them calibrating that whole entire experience for, for you <clears throat> growing up. You know, your book provides knowledge that, you know, once read, can't be talked on that mat. And... <laughs> I had to talk to you about it. And so, you know, I, I see this talk as an opportunity for us to discuss what you've written about with, with the racial justice movements that's happening right now, right? And um, by the way, for those listening, Wes's new book is titled, They Can't Kill Us All. And Wes, I'm, you know, we're going to have a talk here, but for those listening right now, and I'll have you repeat this again at the end of the episode, can you tell us how we can uh, get a copy of this book. Of course. So it should be available pretty much anywhere where you buy books. Now, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com are great ways to do it. The audiobook's available on audio. Um, but if you walk into your local bookseller, they should have a copy. If not, harass them and then they can get one. Um, but it should be pretty widely available. Um, and like I said, when in doubt, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com can get you one quick. So, you know, I, I listened to the book in audio and I have to tell you, you know, I commend you for the body of work that you've captured. And I wanted to ask, you know, why did you write this book? So one of the reasons I wrote this book was, you know, so my day job is I'm a national reporter for the Washington Post who covers law enforcement, race, justice, right? So I'm the police shooting guy for the Washington Post, cover Ferguson, cover Baltimore, cover Cleveland, Charleston. And one thing that was frustrating for me 
was that I, you know, I would write all these stories time and time again, story after story, article after article about the protest movement and profiling the leaders, profiling the groups that are involved, like, you know, doing all this writing. And I'd still get these emails from readers. So they'd be like, I just don't get it. Why are people in the streets? What, what, what's everyone so upset about? Or, you know, like that no matter how much I wrote about it, it felt like it wasn't breaking through yes. and that we weren't reaching people. And, and so I thought, what if I could try this in a different medium? What if I could sit down and just write everything I know about one of these topics. You know, what if I could write everything I know about the protest, about the leaders, about these cities, about these shootings? If I could put it all in one place, you know, use all of my notes, all those interviews that never made it into the piece, all that little color, that little detail. Maybe then I could provide, you know, one of my, my readers with a full primer on on this protest movement, right? And so the book wasn't necessarily written for people who already know everything about it, who follow it really closely. You know, I you know, I think people who follow my coverage very closely will be introduced to familiar characters and familiar places. But in many ways it was written for those people who had not read um you know, you know, who had not been paying attention, but who still might have some questions about the protest movement. You know, I know you spent some time working you know, with with LA Times and the Boston Globe before, you know, taking this opportunity with the Post, and um, I believe in the book you mentioned that you were actually covering some some political reporting leading up to the events in Ferguson and the Mike Brown shooting. Curious, you know, why did you actually accept the request to go to Ferguson? Of course. And I think it's an interesting question. You know, yeah, I was a political reporter. I was covering Congress for the Post. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go on the campaign trail in 2016. That was my big goal or my big aim. Um, you know, I wanted to be a political reporter. But even as I did that, I always had a kind of sensibility and a desire to tell stories that reporters who maybe didn't look like me would not tell. You know, I grew up in and came up in the industry very conscious or conscious of issues of diversity and issues of media representation, knowing that very often I might be the only black person or black man on a staff. Mm. I might be the only person covering the story with my type of background, right? And so I always try to think about whether I was covering local politics in Boston or covering entertainment in LA, or now that I was covering national politics for the Post, how can I make sure that I'm telling stories that maybe other reporters would not consider would not know to cover, right? And so I always try to think about that. So like on the Hill, for example, when I was covering Congress, that might mean that I would write an extra piece on the attempts to renew the Voting Rights Act that maybe everyone else wouldn't write about that day, but I would take the extra hour and write that. Or maybe I would write about the long-term unemployment um, benefits and the need to, you know, people who are trying to lobby to get those renewed, even though that wasn't like the sexiest story and a lot of reporters were covering other things, it was like, you know, is this a story that affects people who look like me? Right. How can I make sure that I kind of propel those stories forward? And so when, you know, the shooting happened in Ferguson, Michael Brown was killed on August 9th, 2014. I, you know, it wasn't necessarily my job, but in the same way I walked over to the national desk and began having a conversation. Is there anything I can do to be helpful? Want me to call the members of Congress from Missouri, right? Maybe they're going to call for a DOJ investigation. Maybe they have some information. We didn't know anything yet, right? So I was always looking for ways to be involved um, in stories that affected people who look like me. Because I know that, you know, sometimes if I didn't raise my hand, maybe we wouldn't tell that story. Now, I'm sure that wouldn't have been the case with Ferguson. It was so big at that point. Right. But I still you know, always with someone who tried to gravitate towards those types of stories. Right. And I found that you were one of a, a very few individuals who, who grew up outside of the environment of a Ferguson or a Baltimore, 
or mm-hmm. you know a number of the other cities that you covered, but still managed to experience those events firsthand as a black man. You know, you were there as you shared. You know, you experienced um, being arrested for no reason, and you know, as as I, I read uh, and your storytelling is crazy, I really felt like I was present there with you. But you know, for mm-hmm. for those listening, what was it like as a young reporter? You know, sitting in a McDonald's mcdonald's in in ferguson trying to simply do your job right and report on what had been happening and what a short while later you know being arrested right how how did it feel as those plastic ties as you described wrapped your wrists and those officers ignored your your plea for for justice well you know look i mean it was deeply frustrating right like you know because you feel helpless and powerless in this way this idea that like you've done nothing wrong and you're being not just like arrested, but like inconvenienced. Like, you know, like I was here to do my job right? and I was doing my job and I'm like thinking about like the story I'm supposed to be writing right now or like this, that quote I'm trying to, I was supposed to be sending it, you know, like, like I was like frustrated at the, like the physical inconvenience. Um, now that came after, I guess, I guess that's the second feeling. Cause the first feeling is a feeling of like actual fear, right? That's what this, I was, this, yeah. moment, this moment and this feeling of like, cause you're so out of control. You know, I think we think very often that we can like <clears throat> reason and we can, you know, like I'm the kind of person who feels like I can talk myself in or out of anything. Right. You know, like, oh, they just don't understand it yet. Let me go explain this or let me talk to, you know, like, and you have that moment, that physical moment where you're like, you have no control. Mm. Someone else is in complete control um, and has complete stewardship of my being and like my body and my safety and my, you know, like, and then after that, it's this feeling of like frustration and, and, and inconvenience. Did you at some point in that moment feel a greater sense of connection to what the people in that um, community were actually living out? Well, I definitely think that we had, you know, going through that process, we we found, you know, myself and Ryan Riley, the Huffington Post reporter who right. was arrested with, we, we found the, the police to be remarkably unreasonable. Right. You know, we were just trying to ask like some basic follow up questions like, hey, what, what could we have done differently? How might we, you know, can we, can you guys give us your names? Who can we talk to? Is there a superior? You know, and like we just received no good faith interaction back at all. And I, and I just found that and it was found it very frustrating, you know, even when we, you know, the, when we parachute into these stories, even stories where we're expected and we are expecting to be critical of the police or the powers that be the local government, right? We still, as members of the media, very often give the police and the government a huge benefit of the doubt. Right. We kind of assume that like they're good faith actors, they're doing what they're saying, they're, they're supposed to do, that the things they tell us must be true. Right. And so like we have, we have kind of like these built in assumptions and it was, you know, even for me, someone who can be a little bit more cynical and a little more critical, it's kind of striking all of a sudden to like watch the people in authority just so disregard, um, you know, kind of that type of good faith interaction. You know, the thing, the other thing that was interesting was that I think that when we were arrested, you know, there have been hundreds of demonstrators and residents arrested at this point, right? We were far from the first arrest, but we were the first journalists to be arrested. And I think that was a wake-up call to a lot of friends in the media and a lot of colleagues in the media who, before that, you know, were just skeptical of everything and who who thought that all these people must must deserve it and, like, we have to give the police this ultimate benefit of the doubt. And then it was, like, this moment where it was like, wait a second, this seemed really unreasonable, the way they treated these two reporters. If they'll treat these two reporters from D.C. this way, how must they be treating the normal people, right? So I thought it was, like, a wake-up call for the industry Mm. about, you know, how 
trusting we are of the police in these instances. Right. We met this summer, right, at the tail end of the summer mm-hmm. at the, the Be Modern Man tour. And mm-hmm. in that conversation, in that discussion at night, you made a, a, a profound comment, which I believe was the only statement actually noted uh, from you. And you said the media coverage on race is incomplete. I'm curious to know, you know, what's been your biggest frustrations with the media as it relates to the racial in racial justice movement? I think that so often we're very we're very reactionary and we're very short sighted. Mm. So like something will happen, like the shooting of the police officers in Dallas will happen and we'll immediately be like, wait, is this the end of Black Lives Matter? What's going on? It's like, well, no, it's not like <laughs> like if we know anything about history, we know that like in the 60s and 70s or like dozens of cities like being buried in the ground and police officers being killed and it wasn't the end of the civil rights movement. Right. You know, like that, like so often we just at this very basic level lack any historical understanding even of the of the world we live in and the country we cover so that we like react in this very like kind of exaggerated reactionary way with, without necessarily standing in a place of context and understanding and I, and I think the other thing too is that we very often we, we very often cover issues of race as it relates to people's feelings about issues of race right as opposed to about the outcomes and the results of policy and so, like when we have conversations about racism or about prejudice, about the role of race, we in many ways have a very underdeveloped and like very low level conversation, right? Where we see like a police shooting will happen and people will be like, well, but the officer's black, so how could this be about race? And like, and it's like, well, but that's not how race manifests in police shootings, right? Like, you know, in or if the way that race in, impacts fatal police force is not necessarily because an individual racist officer decided he wanted to kill a black person that day, right? Rather, it's a conversation that's about implicit bias. Is, was there, is there a reason that culturally or societally, perhaps this officer thought this person was more dangerous than they were because they were black? Right. It's about policing policy. Why were the police clearing that corner? Why were they serving that warrant? Why were they, you know, like it, it's about all these other steps and those, those other avenues where race can enter into the conversation. But so often we just have such a like elementary level conversation about race where it's, you know, it's like the first thing anyone wants to know is that the race of the police officer, because the officer isn't white, then it must not be about race. And it's like, come on guys, it's not how race works. And so that's, that can be really frustrating. Mm. So you touched on black lives matter. Um, would love to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, you shared in your book how, how things likely got started right with, uh, Alicia Garza and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think today, I think people are, are, are a lot confused by the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And um, again, you know, I, I, I think some can be some of it can be contributed to the media's reporting on a lot of the negative sides of the movement and, and not really highlighting the positives. For the most part, leave a lot of people neutral, right, on on the best yeah. intentions of the creators and supporters of the movement. I don't know how much of this, you know, you're comfortable speaking to from your vantage point, but as best you can, could you explain how the the movement was formed and why it has grown to what it is today? Sure, of course. And so I um and and we kind of walk through this a bit in the book, you know. But and I obviously don't speak for any of these activists or for their groups, but you know I cover them and I talk to them a lot, and I think I have some sense of kind of the history and the arc of this of these organizations and this and this movement, right? And so when you when you look at uh, Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives broadly, right, which is um, kind of the how the movement is described, because Black Lives Matter is 
an individual organization, but also is what people refer to as the full protest movement, right? The the term Black Lives Matter comes from, you know, as a hashtag, was something that was created by this set of women, uh, Lisa Garza, um, Obaltamedi, and then um, uh, Patrice Colliers. After the George Zimmerman verdict in 2013, after the decision not to convict George Zimmerman in the death of Trayvon Martin, and as everyone was reeling after that, and these vigils are popping up across the country, Alicia Garza writes a, a Facebook status that she describes as a love letter to black people. Um, she described this idea that, um, you know, she says essentially, black people, I love you, um, our lives matter, black lives matter, right? And, and, and as she begins talking with Patrice and Opal, they, they say, but that has like they could see the the poetry in that this idea that like Black Lives Matter like they could they could hear the strength of that as a calling card or as a slogan and so they started developing an organization around that idea right an ideology around that idea and 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 so that so that begins in 2013 2014 you fast forward to Ferguson Missouri um, you have the death of Michael Brown the police shooting you you have thousands of people take to the street uh, demanding change demanding justice in this case as well as changes to how they are policed broadly and and we begin to see kind of an overlap of the two um, in the meantime the three women have begun building a network they begin founding some chapters at various points across the country and they've also found like-minded allies people um, in various groups across the country whether it be Baltimore block in, in Baltimore the organization for black struggle in st. Louis or um, you know, Million Hoodies United and the Dream Defenders in Florida. And so there's this network of black activist groups mm. and and they begin all lending support to the groups that are now popping up in Ferguson, Missouri. Eventually, these protests, which break out not just here, but you also have protests in Ohio, um, led largely by the Ohio Student Association, so a different organization, uh, group protests in New York um, by groups like the New York, the NYC Justice League. Right? So you're seeing these like demonstrations popping up all over the country, and very soon they are collectively known as the Black Lives Matter protest movement, right? That people start, that, that phrasing starts popping up in place after place, and that in each individual place, the national network is starting to support them. And so that kind of, in many ways, I think is the origin, right? Is, is that you had these incidents time and time again, whether it be Oscar Grant, Jordan Davis, Trayvon Martin, Troy Davis, right? Where you had the Jenna Six, where you had black people feeling as if their lives were being devalued. And I think that built the momentum over time and then led to um, this, you know, it, it led to this kind of critical mass of, of black frustration and anxiety that then boiled over in Ferguson and that propelled a movement forward. And so as we go from 2014 to 2015, we continue to see more cities, Charleston, Cleveland, um, you know, Sandra Bland. We're seeing more videos. We're seeing people being killed, Walter Scott and Sam Dubois, right? And, and, and we start to see that there's a staying power here. Everyone thought that, like, there was just a bunch of people who were angry in the streets in Ferguson. And then when they weren't going to charge the officer, everyone's going to get over this. Who cares? Right. And then you'd see the next video and you see the next city. Then you see the next video and the next city. And it was this empowering. It was kind of this trickle effect from city to city. Wow. I'm, I'm curious to know, like, from your vantage point, because you're reporting on this continuously. Uh, is there good that you have seen come from this movement um, to this point that might not have otherwise happened without it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think to begin with, this was not an issue that was at the forefront of our domestic conversation. Yep. Uh, the, the way that black people interact with the police, 
was just not something that we were talking about to the same extent. We were having conversations about stop and frisk in New York and in some other cities, but we were not having this type of conversation about police use of force. And police departments were not having this conversation about use of force and about potential reform that they are now having only because of this political pressure that was created, right? I also think that I also think that we've seen groups and organizations founded that work both in policy as well as in local organizing, and that this kind of ongoing movement has empowered them, right? And so we're seeing groups that are working to empower black men and black women. And some of those groups are literally have only been founded during this period of time because of the kind of political energy that's been created. And so we've seen, like I said, focus at the local level. We've also seen focus at the national level, right? We've got President of the United States and the Attorney General who are talking about issues of racial equity, and who are talking about issues of police reform and criminal justice reform. I I definitely think that the protest movement has applied pressure in spaces that we wouldn't see otherwise, right? We've also seen, you know, some strides in police accountability and police reform. Now, not everywhere, um, but we have seen some of that. We've seen district attorneys, more law and order, lock them up district attorneys, get run out in favor of reformers who might be more progressive or more um, thoughtful in terms of their sentencing guidelines or, you know, how how they're dealing with folks, right? We've seen um, you know, we've seen a series of police chiefs and police departments um, decide that they're going to try to review their use of force policies or be more transparent about um, their reporting of data, right? And so, and we've also seen hundreds of police departments that have started using body camera programs and starting developing policies around police transparency. I think all of those things are, are net positives. Right. And I think it'd be very hard to see a world in which all of them happened. I mean, like certainly some of those things probably would have happened, but that all of those things happened is the extent that they have, if it weren't for the political pressure. Like, you know, the thing about, think about protests is we all, for the most part, are kind of uncomfortable with them because the point of protest is like to be disruptive, right? It's to shut the highway down when you're driving to work. It's to like, you know, you know, it's to like interrupt that speech that you're trying to listen to. Like the point is to like shake the status quo and make people uncomfortable and force them to pay attention, right? And so, we, we often see we, we see this historically with almost any civil rights protest, no matter what it is, right? The uh, the Birmingham boycotts, the Free, Freedom Summer, right? You always see protests don't ever poll well. Like majority of Americans are always like those that riffraff needs to get out of the street. What are they doing, right? But the point is that you agitate and you make people pay attention. You make people listen, and so I definitely think unquestionably, certainly in the policing space. There have been changes that have only happened because of these protests, because those protests have created political pressure and political will to make some changes. Well, of course, I'm I'm still trying to understand how we get people of all races in the country kind of behind the great mission of the the racial justice movement in America, mm-hmm. right? Um, any idea on how you know this movement moves moves more people? than just black people towards this bigger mission? Well, and I think it can be difficult. I think it is difficult. I think it's one of the major challenges, right? That yeah. Black people, we are still <laughs> a relatively small amount of the population, right? right. Like we don't. And so that there's, there's this level of coalition building that is to some extent required, no matter what, um, to, to see change. But I think it's difficult because I think that there's an impression across the country and with many people, um, as has long been the case, that, you know, giving equity or equality to, you know, historically oppressed people is somehow requires taking something from them. And so I think that can be very difficult, you know, and I I think there are always people who are going to be skeptical. I think that guilt plays a large factor in our inability or unwillingness to have some of these conversations as well, because to admit that we live in a world where people aren't treated fairly or that there are inequities that linger requires 
many people to admit that perhaps some of what they have, they have received or achieved because the rules have been skewed towards them, right? And I think that is very uncomfortable (laughs) for a lot of white people, right? This idea that, wait, what do you mean I had advantages? I don't, I don't think I have any advantages. I don't understand. You know, I think that that can be very frustrating for people who feel like they've worked really hard and they followed the rules and they don't hate anybody. And so I think that that can be really difficult. And I think that's something that has to be navigated. You know, we obviously have no idea um, how the, the president-elect and his administration, you know, will help or hurt. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it's unclear now the president-elect has, been, has has said, you know, that he doesn't necessarily, you know, like he, he seems to not be an ally of many of the things that, you know, kind of the protest movement and the racial justice movement have advocated for. Um, he, he seems to be an opponent of many of those things as it relates to collection of data or federal oversight of policing, certainly. And, and so I, th- I think there could be, you know, some massive shifts in terms of what the federal government's posture towards the movement is. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see um, activists and protest leaders in the White House meeting with President Trump the way they were meeting with President Obama. I think it's probably unlikely to see the Department of Justice being so critical and launching these investigations into police departments um, the way they did under President Obama. Uh, I think it's much more likely that... The Department of Justice plays a much more hands-off role um, as it relates to police departments. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot, uh, I think it's going to be really difficult to see, you know, in, in terms of how the federal government continues interacting in these spaces. But the other thing is that, you know, policing and criminal justice is fundamentally kind of a local issue in the way, just the way that we are structured, that you have 18,000 police departments, 19,000 police departments, and they don't have much federal oversight. And so even if you have a you know president or attorney general who are not particularly interested in these issues, there's still space and potential for this work to be done at local levels, you, you know, even if the federal government isn't that interested in continuing to do some of it. Right. That said, are you planning to remain as actively involved as you've been in the past couple of years? Oh, I think I, I mean, I, I definitely will. I mean, there's a ton of stories and a ton of things to cover, ton of conversations to have. You know, I, I don't I don't think that there's um, much chance um, that I'll be switching beats anytime soon because I just think there's going to be a ton to write about. Right. Hopefully good. Yeah, ho- hopefully. Wes, we're about to wrap up, but, you know, I want to give you an opportunity once again to to share how, how those listening can get involved, get a copy of the book and stay connected to you. Of course. And so the book is called They Can't Kill Us All, um, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. It is available pretty much everywhere. should be in your local bookstore. should be in your airport bookstore. And it's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Audible and all those great places. It's available now. Go buy it. Buy like five copies. Um, and if you can't figure out how to buy it, um, you can reach out to me. I'm just at Wesley Lowry on every platform on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, W-E-S-L-E-Y-L-O-W-E-R-Y, National Reporter for the Washington Post. And like I said, anyone has any questions, any difficult, you know, f- finding the book or anything, hit me up. I'm really accessible. My email's all over the internet and I'd be happy to help. Wes, thank you very much for the heartfelt conversation, man. I'm happy we had the discussion. You know, I hope that it helps those listening in, in some way to take part in, in a constructive way, right, towards, um, you know, moving us, helping move, move things forward and i think you did a great job i really really appreciate having you on thank you very much of course thanks so much for having me buddy i appreciate it 
Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tvpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content, and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers.